If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 14. We're taking a one-week break from the book of 2 Timothy, and uh, I'll explain why here in just a moment. But uh, Matthew chapter 14, if you've got a Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to mention, some of you saw this and uh, had seen this on our email this week. Uh, As you know, we have been in the process of trying to purchase the property over in front of the Williams Creek subdivision down at at, uh, Fitch and Forty. This week, we actually signed a contract with the seller for that property. So yeah, that's great news. Uh, What that means at this point is there is a feasibility study period that'll go on into the spring, followed by a normal closing period. So Lord willing, at some point later in the spring, we'll close on the property, followed by gathering together the funds and beginning to build a facility so that we are hopefully, again, Lord willing, this is our timetable and not uh, as far as we know at this point the Lord's, but Lord willing, two years from now, we'll be in a facility of our own. So continue to pray for that process as it moves forward. But great news is that we are now under contract with that property. Matthew chapter 14. As I mentioned, we're going to take a break from 2 Timothy. The reason is, as we began to study the end of 2 Timothy 3 this week, we realized that Blake Jennings, our Southwood teaching pastor, had taught on that passage at all of our campuses just about three or two months ago. And so he taught when we were going through theology on the subject of bibliology and the Bible. And he used chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, and he made every point that I would have made this morning. So we looked at it and said, all right, we're going to take a one-week break from 2 Timothy. We'll dive back into 2 Timothy next Sunday and uh, kind of wrap the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. So if you missed that sermon by Blake, go find it on the website in the series on the uh, theology of the Scripture And then we'll get back into 2 Timothy next week. But Matthew 14, uh, we are going to talk about one of my favorite passages from the New Testament this morning. The passage that talks a lot about our control versus the control of God over the world and over our lives. And as I thought about that theme this week, I was remembering that when I was a young man, I experienced in a somewhat terrifying way what it means to be out of control. Because I had a vehicle that I did not maintain very well because I felt I couldn't afford to maintain it. And one day I was on George Bush Drive and the brakes failed. I was going down the road. And if you've ever been in a car where the brakes fail, you know, it is terrifying. There's very little that you can do other than try to downshift, decelerate, and eventually pull the parking brake and hope you can stop the car before you collide with another vehicle. Fortunately, I was able to stop the car. I rolled over to the side, called a tow truck, and they towed it to a shop that had been recommended to me. And uh, the shop ended up moving pretty slow, fixing my car. Uh, I called every day, like you do when you need your car. Is it ready? Is it ready? Is it ready? Uh, It was always, well, we're about to get into fixing your car. Uh, Finally, the fourth or fifth day that it was there, I called and someone answered the phone. I said, hey, I'm calling about uh, this car. My name is Matt. Is the car ready? And this guy goes, oh, hold on just a second. And he goes and he gets the owner on the phone and, and the owner says, yes, sir, I have some bad news for you which is not what you want to hear. And I said, okay, what happened? He said, well, 
uh, your car was parked out in front of my shop. And it had been there for a few days, and I got in the car to pull it into the shop so we could repair it, and I forgot that the brakes don't work. And I crashed your car into the wall of my shop. So now not only are the brakes bad, but my car needs an overhaul on the outside of the body. Uh, I had to get a new hood, new side panels. I mean, the whole deal. It went from being a one-day repair to being a several-week-long repair where they had to totally refinish the front of my car again. Uh, But as I've thought about that over the years, I I come back to this. Although it was inconvenient, I really wish I had been there at the moment when that man realized that he was no longer in control of the vehicle that he was pulling into the shop. He grabbed the wheel, he moved forward, he thought, okay, I got this, I'm going to pull it and I'm going to fix this car. And then he has that stunning realization that although my hands are on the wheel, although I'm pressing the brake, I'm not in control of this vehicle. And he went from feeling in control to feeling really out of control within a span of probably half a second. And as I thought about it, I thought, uh, the, the truth is that all of us, if we live long enough, we will have a moment like that, won't we? Where we feel like, you know what, I got my hands on the wheel of life here. I've got my one year, my five year, my 10 year plan. And all of a sudden, something occurs in your life and you realize, I am out of control. And I'm not headed in the direction or at the speed that I want to be headed. I mean, honestly, think about your life and consider this. How many of you would say that over the course of your life, the plans that you laid as a young person have been fulfilled? How many of you would really say, you know what, everything I hoped for my career has happened? Most of us, if we're honest, what we thought we would be doing for a career does not resemble at all what we're doing. How many of you, all of your plans for your marriage have been fulfilled? All of your dreams for your kids have happened exactly as you hoped? Nobody in the room, if we're honest. Every single one of us eventually gets to a point where we recognize we are out of control. And it can be a terrifying realization to look and say, you know what, I control very little about my life. I don't even control when I'm born and When I die, something could happen to each of us today that could end our lives, and we have no control even over our life. No matter how much broccoli we eat, we can't control the day or the time of our death. Here in 2016, many of us have become frighteningly aware of the fact that we are out of control of the world because we look at world events, we look at our election, we look at the violence that has plagued our nation over the course of the last year, and we feel afraid. And we feel that we're out of control. And maybe we're tempted to think, if I can only convince all of my friends on Facebook to vote like I'm going to vote, everything will work out like I want it to work out. But I think deep inside we realize I am out of control of the world. And when we have that realization, there really are only three ways we can respond. One is we can respond with utter panic and terror. Or we could respond with false confidence. You can keep moving in that car as you plow into the side of the building and go, I got this. I'm good. I'm smart enough. 
I'm strong enough. I've made my plans. Even as things are not going where I want them to go, we can pretend that we're still in control. Or option three is we recognize that the one who made the universe is the only one who controls the universe. And we say, in the midst of changed plans, in the midst of trial, in the midst of chaos, I will trust the one who is in control. And step after step after step, I will follow him even when all semblance of order seems to be out the window. As we look at Matthew 14 this week, we see the disciples in a situation where they have to make that type of decision. What will they do in a moment when everything in their life at that exact instant is out of control? The plans that they made have totally gone out the window and they find themselves on a dark night in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a sea, unable to do anything about their situation. And the question that they have is, is God still here? Does Jesus know what's happening right at this moment, or has he abandoned us? And as we watch this situation play out, we will see Jesus reminding them of a fundamental truth of the Scripture, and that is there is no moment you will find yourself where Jesus is absent. There's no moment you will find yourself where Jesus is out of control of the situation. That is the reality in which we live as believers in Jesus Christ. So when those plans for your marriage, your family, your career, your nation, your world, when those plans are spinning beyond your control, Jesus is present. Jesus is in control. There are two categories of people most likely in this room. There are those who believe they are in control, and there are those who already recognize we're not. And the question becomes, at that moment of recognizing I'm not, will I hand over control to the one who is? Look with me at Matthew chapter 14 as we see the disciples wrestle with this issue. Start in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. All right, the first thing that we see is this. Jesus is never absent. Jesus is never absent. Now, to give you a sense of the context of this passage, in all of the Gospels where we see this story... It follows immediately on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. And you remember in, in the wilderness what had happened. They had reached a situation where there wasn't enough food. And all of these men and women and children had been sitting in the wilderness for quite some time. And Jesus demonstrates miraculously that he has control over nature, right? He begins to take the loaves and the fish and he breaks them apart and he feeds 5,000 
men plus women and children, and there's still food left over. And immediately after that happens, after the disciples recognize this guy is somebody supernatural, Jesus says, okay, I want you to get into the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and wait for me there. And Jesus does something he often does throughout the Gospels, which is he goes up on a mountain to pray. Now, if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, here's essentially what you'll see. Uh, The feeding of the 5,000. Whoops, let me see if I can... Here we go. The feeding of the 5,000 probably takes place somewhere in this region, in the wilderness right on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sends them to get in a boat and go up around to here, somewhere between Capernaum and Bethsaida, as you read the passages in the Gospels. Now, they end up over here in Gennesaret. That's the next place that you're going to see the disciples after this passage. The reason is because once they get out on the water, the storm blows up so fiercely that they are blown off course. All right, so the, the narrative tells us now they have rowed out and they are several miles in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. John, in John chapter 6, says they're about four miles out. Now, the Sea of Galilee at its widest point is only about eight miles across. All right, so they're right in the middle. The storm kicks up. Uh, the waves at times in the Sea of Galilee can get 10 or 12 feet high. They have documented waves on the Sea of Galilee in storms like this. So you imagine you're in a little fishing boat and the waves are just tossing you around and they struggle with this storm, not for a few minutes, but for hours and hours and hours with this storm. Uh, It tells us that uh, it was about the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. And 6 a.m., most likely they had left the opposite shore sometime late in the evening, 9 or 10, maybe 11 o'clock the night before. Now it is four, five, six hours later, and they should have easily been able to cross to the other side. And they are stuck, and they are alone, and they are frightened. Uh, Some of you in here, no doubt, have had situations where you were afraid you were going to die. Maybe you uh, were about to get into a car accident and you thought, I am going to die. This is it. I used to read when I was a kid, Reader's Digest, and they always had this feature every month called Drama in Real Life. And you may remember Drama in Real Life was essentially near-death experiences. People who were trapped in caves or on the water in a storm or they were lost out at sea or they were in the desert, right? It was a very anxiety-inducing column for a child to read. But I found it interesting because you always would ask, how do people feel when they're at that moment, when they think this is the end? Well, the disciples believe this is the end. They are afraid and they struggle and they struggle and they struggle and they're out of control. And it's right at that moment that Jesus shows up. They don't believe Jesus is anywhere nearby. Now, as you look at the parallel account in Mark, what's fascinating is it says Jesus saw them struggling from the shore. So the whole time they're struggling, Jesus is up there on the mountain and he sees them and he's watching them, but they don't see him until he shows up. And imagine you've been on the water for hours and hours and hours in the middle of this storm. And all of a sudden somebody shows up walking, not in a boat. He's not in a boat. He's not swimming. He is walking on top of the water. And their response, it is a ghost, makes us laugh, but it actually makes a whole lot of sense when you understand what's been going on. They believe they're on the verge of death. They now believe they are seeing emissaries from hell. 
walking on the water toward them because they think we're dead already. And so they're terrified and they begin to shout out, it is a ghost. And then Jesus speaks and he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Those words, it is I, in the original language, those words are ego eimi in Greek. You see ego eimi throughout the gospel narratives. Anytime Jesus says these words, I am. You will remember in the spring, we did a series on the seven I am statements from the book of John. And seven times in a significant way, there's actually more than that in the book of John, but we focused on those seven. Jesus says, I am. I am were the words that God had spoken to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses said, who should I tell the people who you are? He says, tell them I am who I am. Jesus here on the water in the middle of this storm is making a dramatic claim that I am the God who made the seas. It's interesting, as you look throughout the Old Testament, there is somebody who walks through the sea. It's God. Look at a couple of passages. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Then Job 9, he alone stretches out the heavens and does what? Treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus comes walking on top of the water and he says, take courage, I am. I am the one who made the sea. The God who created everything around you is walking on it, is here with you, and has never left. In the ancient world, the sea was a scary, terrifying place. In fact, often they believed that it was from the sea that all evil would come. It was from the sea. As you look at, for example, the prophecies of the end times in Revelation, as John describes the beast, the Antichrist, where does he come from? He comes from the sea. The sea was the deep where there were monsters, there were things unknown, people died. And here is Jesus walking on top of it like he's taking an afternoon stroll. And he is reinforcing for them what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, that there is nowhere you can go where God is not. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There's nowhere you are, there's no moment you're in where the one who made the sea is absent. Jesus is present. Even in those moments where it feels that all of the plans that you made are falling apart. In that moment, when your heart and your mind are filled with the grief of loss, he's present right there in the midst of it. All of us know what it is like to feel utterly alone in the world. 
to think nobody understands what I am thinking, what I am feeling. I can't even share the struggles of my heart and my mind because nobody would understand. When our oldest daughter was a baby, she was quite colicky. We had a hard time getting her to sleep most nights. And so we would walk around trying to get this child to go to sleep. And she was one of these kids that would even uh, kind of trick you. She would close her eyes and look like she was asleep. And you'd walk to the crib and you'd set her down. And you'd ever so slowly try to remove your hands. And as soon as you took a step away, she'd start to cry again. And you'd start the whole thing over again. Sometimes for hours. I distinctly remember one night, late at night, walking around with her for seven hours straight, trying to get her to sleep. And I remember walking and just kind of looping our kitchen in the dark. And as I would walk through the house, I would look out the windows and notice that every other window in the neighborhood, the lights were out. It was dark. Everybody else was asleep. And I would think everybody on the planet is asleep. And here I circle all alone in the world. But you're not alone. So I'd remind myself, God sees. God knows. He's here with you. It actually became one of the primary reminders of truth that we decided to impart to that daughter when she was young, that God is always with you. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what we call the omnipresence of God. There's nowhere you can run where he is gone. And so in whatever difficulty you are in right now, you say, nobody understands. Nobody understands what has happened to our financial situation over the last year. Nobody understands the direction my career is going. Nobody understands what's happening right in my marriage right now. And even if I told anybody else, they wouldn't believe or understand. Nobody gets what it is like that I had all of these dreams for my kids and my kids are not fulfilling those dreams. Nobody gets it. I'm all alone. I am all by myself. And Jesus appears like he did to the disciples and says, take courage, I am. I am the one who made the sea. I am the one who controls the universe. You're never alone because Jesus is never absent. And then as you continue throughout the passage, we're going to see not only is he present, but firmly, firmly in control. Look at verses 28 to 32. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And so Peter sees what's happening, and uh, this fits Peter's character really from everything else we read about him in the Gospels. Peter is a bit reckless, but always willing to test the limits of what Jesus can do. If Peter were one of your children, he's the one that you walk outside, and he is at the top of the highest tree in the backyard, and he says, Dad, look what I did! And you say, please slowly climb down. But that is really impressive, what you just did, right? That's Peter. And so he sees Jesus, and uh, without even thinking about it, it comes out of his mouth. He goes, Lord, if it is you, tell me to walk to you on the waves. And Jesus says one word. He says, come. Right? In the original language, this is Jesus. He says, bring it on. Right? Now, I made that up, actually. That's not what it says in Greek. It simply says, you come. You come. And I imagine Jesus looking at him. He said, come on, Peter. So Peter gets out of the boat And other than Jesus, the only person to walk on top of the water in all of history is Peter. And he begins to walk on top of the waves. And every time I read this, I think, how remarkable must this have been? That he steps down and there's waves and they're going everywhere. And here's Peter and he's not walking on a normal like water bed. It's like being in a bounce house, right? And he's like this and he's on top of the water. And I can't help but think how remarkable it must have been to him to think this is the one who made the waves. This is the one who made the sea. And here comes Peter walking on top of the water. Right Now, as long as Peter keeps looking at Jesus, as long as Peter keeps trusting Jesus, he's all right. But like many of us, Peter begins to doubt, right? So he's on the water and the waves are going around and they're going back and forth and up and down. And Peter starts to look around and he goes, what am I doing? This is insanity. And he starts to get afraid and he begins to sink down into the water. And right before his mouth goes under, he goes, Lord, save me. A number of years ago, I, I was remembering this morning as I was looking at this passage, uh, my wife was at a friend's house and they had a pool. And you know how it is, you're talking and uh, kids are kind of running around and somehow in the midst of that conversation, our son, who was then about two and a half, ran over to the pool and he fell into the deep end of the pool. And he was only in there for, for a matter of uh, maybe moments, 30 seconds to a minute And as Shannon was talking, she suddenly heard, Mommy! Right? And looked over, and then his head went back under the water. And she ran over, she jumped in, she grabbed him out of the water and pulled him up. Because with his last breath where he could scream, he knew who to scream for. And she came running. That's what Peter does. He's going under, he looks up, he goes, Lord, save me! Right? And Jesus reaches down and grabs him, and pulls him up. If you read the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, you find these words, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me, but you have brought up my life from the pit. That's what Jesus does. Grabs Peter, pulls him up onto the water, and then he looks him in the eye, and he says something that really is a bit stunning given the circumstances. He looks him in the eye and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Right? And at first you read that, you go, yeah, man, why did you doubt? 
But then you think, if I were Peter, wouldn't I go, hey, there's 11 other guys on the boat. Why are you getting onto me? I got out of the boat, right? I got out of an actual boat in the middle of a storm and I walked to you because I believed it was you. Everybody else is sitting there thinking right now they wish they were me. What do you mean, why did you doubt? Why does Jesus say it to him? Here's why. Because Jesus doesn't grade his faith on the curve. Jesus tells him, Peter, the faith that brought you out of the boat, you were walking on the water, Peter. Why did you doubt? You were doing it. The God who made the sea, the God who had the power to give you the ability to walk on the water, could have kept you up on the water. Why did you doubt in the midst of that challenging situation? Because even when we see the power of God, at times our hearts and our minds struggle to believe that He's truly in control. I think Jesus would have Peter and the disciples remember what had just happened with the feeding of the 5,000. He had demonstrated his control over all of nature. And he says, Peter, why, why did you doubt? I have this. I'm in control. And to drive home the point, in verse 32, when they got in the boat, what happened? The wind stopped. We see another time in the Scripture when Jesus, in the middle of a storm like this, he he says, be quiet, right? And immediately the storm stops. It just stops. You have to imagine they've been fighting the storm for hours and hours and hours. The waves are high. Jesus gets in the boat and everything stops. And that reinforces what Jesus had just said to Peter. Why did you doubt? Think of the things that you fear. Think of the things in your life right now that cause you to feel out of control, that cause you to feel chaotic. Maybe it is this election season. I read an article just this week that said basically the majority of us feel stressed out and anxious by the election. Maybe it is your personal life. And you just say, you know what, I came in this morning and I, I felt out of control, and I still feel out of control. And the message of this passage is that there is nothing that you fear that God is not in control of. He does not have His hand on the wheel going, where are we taking this thing? He knows. The greatest proof of God's authority over all of your fears is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we sang about this morning and that we proclaim every week. Because what's your greatest fear? For most of us, we're afraid of death. We're afraid of the illness that leads to death. We're afraid of lives that make no impact. We're afraid that we will not last or matter. And yet Jesus, after three days in the grave, burst out of the grave alive. The God who made life promises eternal life. Everyone who trusts in Him promises a renewed new heavens and new earth where there will be no sin, no sickness, no death, no crying, no pain, forever and ever and ever. In the face of the power of God, what what do you have to fear? 
Some of you know because I've been able to talk to you directly. Others of you don't know, but just in the last three or four weeks, uh, we've had to face the reality in my family of, of a remission and then a return of my father's cancer and, and facing the prospect that his time may be limited in this body. Our time with him may be limited. And in the face of that uncertainty and pain, I keep coming back to this, that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that is true, yes, we grieve. Yes, we mourn the loss of our dreams, the loss of our hopes for our lives, because we live in a broken and fallen world. But we also look at Jesus. And we trust Him. We trust Him that in the midst of every crisis, His hand is on the wheel. So He says, Peter, why would you doubt? Watch what I can do. And it all gets quiet. And it all gets calm. And it is a preview of what God will one day do through Jesus to completely destroy death completely destroy sadness, completely reign the world in under His eternal control. Nothing you face is something He doesn't see. Nothing you're dealing with is something that catches Him off guard. He knows. He's present. He sees and He cares. That is why He gave Jesus to restore what we cannot restore, to bring life where we have died. He's always present, always in control. And then as we get to the end of this passage, we see in verse 33, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Always, never absent, always in control, always worthy of worship. They do the only thing that they can reasonably do. They fall down and worship Jesus. Notice they acknowledge he's God's son. Uh, Jesus was God's son before any of this happened. Jesus didn't actually change, did he? Who changed? They did. Because they came to a deeper understanding of who he was. And so they hit their knees and they worship. And they say, you are the one who is the Son of God, who was there with the Father when he spoke the world into existence and can redeem any crisis for your glory. I don't know if you've ever had moments like that, where it seems that the presence of God breaks in in a powerful way in your life. When... when we were in seminary. I, there was one week, and it, it was not unusual for us to have this experience, but uh, we looked at the bank account, and we looked at how much month was left, and we realized there was a mismatch, that barring some sort of extra funds, we were going to come up short. And so we were trying to decide which of these bills do we simply not pay. 
So we prayed about it. We asked the Lord to give us his peace and trust. We asked him to provide, and then we moved on with our day. And then we went to church the next Sunday, and as we walked into a Sunday school class, it was interesting, there was this man in the class who always seemed to be in tune with uh, what God wanted for his life, who always seemed to have this peace, and he walked up to us, and he handed me a check, and he said, I don't know why, but I was praying this morning, and I felt the Lord uh, directing me to tell you, you needed this more than I needed it, and he handed us a check. I'm not kidding, exactly enough to cover the gap. Now, that hasn't always happened in my life, if I'm honest. And if God had not done that in that moment, he still would be good. He still would be in control. But in that moment, as he did with the disciples, God broke in to say, I see you. I know. And I care. If you have had a moment like that, tangible or not, where you know that God is present in the midst of your chaos, then hit the dirt and worship Him. He's always present, always in control, always worthy of our worship because of who He is. We're going to end our morning as we began by worshiping the Lord. As we prepare to worship, I, I want us to think about three questions First of all, do you believe that Jesus is with you in your deepest crisis? Do you believe he's actually there? Do you believe he's in control in the midst of your deepest crisis? Do you actually believe he's got this? His hands are on the wheel. He knows what he's doing. And will you worship him for his presence and his power? No matter how your situation ends, We really know how it ultimately ends, right? With a restored, perfect world for those who know Jesus Christ. No more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more crying. And in the meanwhile, we can trust that he knows what he's doing even when the waves are high. Will you worship him then for his presence and his power right where you are? Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for this time. And we are convicted by your word because we often don't trust you. I mean, even though we know what your word says about who you are, we really don't don't trust that you're in the midst of our crisis. We don't trust that you are in control. We feel out of control, and we recognize that often our dreams and our plans don't work out like we want them to. And so we feel afraid and we lack trust. I pray, forgive us for that, and simply let us trust you day after day. Continue to follow you and obey you, even when we don't understand. Allow us to trust, because we know you're good. We know you're there. We know you see us, and you gave Jesus to demonstrate you are always in control. We thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.